Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, friend of the pod and friend of the, the podcast co-hosts in real life, Jake Mintz of Cespedes Family Barbecue. He texted me last week and he said, LOL, Bobby, I just wrote this sentence in an article. Quote, who wants to be the dude at the wedding talking everyone's ear off about labor law anyway? Question mark. And then I realized it's you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that that's an effective summary of who we are? The guy talking everyone's ear off at a wedding about labor law? I think we're kind of fun. I was a little bit hurt when Jake said that. <laughs> uh, I, for one, think I have to be an absolutely insufferable person to consume baseball content with. You know, like someone asked me like, hey, well, that's so... different. That's different. <laughs> we know we can watch Mets and A's games with each other, but subjecting other people to that is frankly like hazardous. Right. Yes. Yeah. My only point is like, you know, if someone asks me like, so baseball offseason, heard there's a lockout going on. What are your thoughts? I need to sit them down and say, do you really want to know my thoughts? Yeah. Because we are going to be here a while. We have to have like a prenuptial agreement for the conversation that we're about <laughs> exactly. to have. Yeah. I need you to know you can leave at any time if you want. Okay. Blink twice if you're feeling uncomfortable and I'll, and I'll release you from the conversation and go subject someone else to it. Well, the beautiful thing about tipping pitches though, is that even if we're the guys at the wedding talking about the nitty gritty of labor law, our listeners are the people sitting at our table talking right back. That's true. I mean, would you go so far as to say we may be the people talking baseball labor law at, at our, at our own weddings eventually down the road you know like are I, we gonna <laughs> i kind of feel like that just might be in the general relationship agreement that both you and i enter that right. we're not allowed to talk about the podcast at the wedding at either of our weddings <laughs> you know like we have a, we had a not a hard and fast rule but a, a a no business on vacation rule that we ended up talking about business but really we saved it for when it was just like you and i off to the mm -hmm. side. We didn't like make our entire friend group talk about the download numbers <laughs> while we were like whale watching, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Work-life boundaries are, are incredibly important. Uh, ones that we may not adhere to, but in concept, they're, they're very important for, for one to have. The real life answer is it depends on what the baseball labor landscape is like during yours or my wedding. There's a strike yeah. going on. I mean, how are we going to avoid it? It's got to come yeah. up. <laughs> It's gotta come up. Wow, that's gonna be really tough. Please don't, please don't strike during, uh, during any major events. Planning your romantic please. future around the right. collective bargaining agreement of Major League Baseball. That's some, maybe a bridge like too some, far. Some, some brain poisoned baseball fans might plan around like the, the playoffs or the World yeah. Series, right? And we're thinking like months beyond that. Like, will there be a work stoppage here? Because it's gonna be a bad time. To, uh, to have any sort of ceremony. I think almost the cooler option is planning, steering right into the skid, you know, getting married right when you know that there's going to be a big blow up and just being like, you know what? My life takes precedence. That's cool. 
That's like Ben Lindbergh, my colleague at The Ringer, who, congratulations to him and his wife, Jesse. They just had a baby right at the beginning of October, and he was like, I'm out. <laughs> no 2021 playoffs. That is, I, I am jealous of that. Wow. Imagine being able to just log off. <laughs> a pregnant pause <laughs> falls over the podcast, a hushed silence. Okay, we have a great conversation coming up with uh, Adam Johnson, co-host of the Citations Needed podcast. Honestly, one of our, I think I can speak for both of us, one of our favorite podcasts out there in the world. If you don't know about it, please check that out. Uh, as if you need tipping pitches to tell you, listen to Citations Needed. Uh, and the writer of the column.substack.com. Uh, we talk about, we get into a lot of stuff about the structure of sports in America and capitalism and all of its evils, but specifically how media covers those things and labor and sports. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bradford William Davis, Meredith Wills, Juiced Ball, Bonanza that we haven't had time to talk about in the last couple of weeks. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagg. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Two very quick reminders for people before we talk about Rob, Rob Manfred, and his baseball agenda. Uh, Number one, we appeared on the Working People podcast last week. That was a a real fun time for both of us with Maximilian Alvarez about uh, the the lockout and the ways that the baseball labor struggle uh, relates to the spate of other labor strife in America in the last year plus um so i really recommend people go check that out and then also i recommend people check out another thing that we were on which is coming out the same day that you're listening to this if you are listening when it comes out on monday we appeared on the horse podcast one of my favorite basketball podcasts out there in the world with our good friend mike schubert and his co-host adam mamawala um it is a basketball podcast that talks about everything but the games, which is a, a great elevator pitch for a podcast that you and I have stolen here for yep. tipping pitches on occasion. Thank you to Shubes. I don't think he would be offended by that. We talked about the the lockout again. We're just on our, our 2021 <laughs> lockout tour. Um, and the history of NBA lockouts and their labor struggle and how baseball and basketball inform each other and differ. Um, so if you're interested, if you're a basketball fan, or if not, just go check that out because it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and if you want to hear us uh, talk about lockouts anywhere else, um, we just put together a little on, media packet for you. Your, we said it on in your email podcast. <laughs> maybe we can we can leave you a voicemail discussing it. Um, I, we can record a voice memo and maybe email it over to you. Whatever whatever works for you, right? We will do it. You could call Alex at five one zero. No, I'm not going <laughs> to give your phone number live on the air. Uh, the other piece of housekeeping is that. Merch, bro. If you haven't gotten your new Tipping Pitches merch, Alex is wearing the shirt right now. Guess what? Mine came earlier today. You hear that? That's the sound. <laughs> Are you struggling to open? That's the sound of Christmas morning. Tipping Pitches Christmas morning. Or whatever non-denominational holiday or denominational holiday you want to celebrate. That's me opening my new shirts. And guess what? You can't see it because we don't put this video anywhere because we don't want to be on video during a podcast. But they look great. They do look great. They feel great, too. I'm always blown away by the quality of the shirts themselves. They're very comfortable. Uh, Wore mine around the house today for the work day. It's almost like Union Labor improves products. Um, Almost. Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, I don't know. I haven't gotten my MBA yet, so I'm I'm yet to decide. Uh, so we talked to Adam for about an hour, and you're about to hear that in a little bit. But I, I wanted to really quickly talk to you, Alex, about a kind of bombshell story from our good friend Bradford William Davis that we haven't had time to talk about because we've been doing the CBA ABCs for the last few weeks. Uh, Major League Baseball used two different baseballs intentionally in the 2021 season. No two ways about it. They admitted it to Bradford because it was incontrovertible evidence assembled from a uh, an experiment by the astrophysicist Dr. Meredith Wills, who is a wonderful Twitter follow. If you do not follow her at BBL underscore astrophysics, what did, what did you how how did you react to this news that the commissioner of baseball just admitted to? I mean, I don't want to call it tampering, but Call a spade a spade, Alex. He tampered with the competitive balance of the season. Never in my life over the last two or three years have I consumed so much content about the literal dissection of the fundamental piece that is central to the game of baseball, the baseball itself. I feel like every six to 12 months, there's some sort of development here that's usually due to the the composition of the baseball and its weight and its effect on uh, drag. Bounciness and, and such bounciness. I, I'm glad I took I, AP physics in high school. I feel like I understand this more than I would have if I had not done that. Well, I, I I didn't take AP physics, which is why I am I am glad that there are people smarter than me doing this work, literally cutting baseballs open and uh, and breaking it down for us. This story is, I don't even feel like like shocking, but not surprising covers it because I was still kind of surprised by this that Major League Baseball <laughs> would actually do this much, you know? And then like outright admit it like the first time they ever were asked about it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, to, to be asked about it and they were like, no, we have no idea what you're talking about. And then to be shown the proof and then they say, okay yeah you got low key key, yes like don't tell anyone but (laughs) don't tell anyone bradford don't write this story for business insider and what was jarring to me about this i think was how kind of out in the open it seemed and and key to this whole discussion is the fact that mlb has kind of constantly been tinkering with the balls right and what is up to kind of their performance standards for the balls these are not new conversations obviously this has been much discussed uh the the home run revolution the fly ball revolution and subsequent deadening of the ball and the 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 un the undeadening and the re-deadening right we're on like zombie ball number five right now like it's really bizarre but you know you had it's like Jurassic Park where they just keep coming back with like a bigger and badder T-Rex. <laughs> right, exactly. Like how many times can you reboot this franchise? We got fucking Chris, whatever his last name is in this shit. <laughs> Pratt? Yeah. I preferred him uh, as Mario, personally. I'm re- <laughs> Come on. Those are my people. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the gist of the article is that, you know, Major League Baseball said that they, they were using these baseballs with... Uh, with lighter centers, that they perform better uh, on the field, and that's what they were going to be using in 2021. But they kept making these older baseballs that had these heavier cores and kept using them throughout the 2021 season. It was not a situation where, you know, you had older balls for the first month, 
because MLB was trying to get through a surplus as they kind of tried to pass off. And then for the rest of the year, they used these lighter balls. You would see them kind of pop up uh, over the course of the year. And I encourage everyone to read the article itself, which we will link to in the description, because they uh, Bradford does a great job of like visually breaking yeah. down what this looks like over the course of the season, month to month. And they go very in-depth into the batches of production and looking at the individual batch codes on each baseball. I mean, seriously, this is like, if, you, if, if you're if you a fan of l- lowercase b baseball, and I don't even mean the sport, I mean <laughs> the object, you're, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> Which one do you think they sell to people in Target? Because I'm holding up my baseball that I keep on my desk right now that's signed by... Robert D. Mann for junior official Major League Baseball. You think I got a juiced one or a regular one? Probably a regular know. one, do you, right? Do you have like a, juice you have like the a pedestrian balls? Do you have like a kitchen scale? You know, or like you can maybe like we can just get out into the field and hit some hit some balls and really tell if we can feel the difference. You know, right? I think like we'd MLB be able players to. could tell. They were like, "Yeah, these <laughs> balls are different. They're they're performing yeah. differently, even if they couldn't yeah. tell in their hand." As Bradford gets into in the story, um, I would also recommend if you want to hear. Bradford and Meredith expound even more on it. They had a great interview on Effectively Wild with uh, friends of friends of the podcast, Meg Riley and Ben Lindbergh, um, where they asked a lot of those relevant questions that you might be having from Alex and I's cursory exploration into this phenomenon. Um, I think the last thing that I want to say on this before we get to our conversation with Adam is that it's kind of shocking every time to me how if you pull the thread of every problem in baseball these days, it just goes straight to the commissioner. In this case, literally pull the thread. It goes right (laughs) to him. (laughs) Being like derelict in his duty, essentially like to protect the game and to steward the game in a direction that is fair and in the best interest of the fans and players. And I guess owners like he really, it's not an equilateral triangle by any means. We knew that, but in this case, really it's the, the owners are like, a line in that triangle that are five times longer than the other two. Uh, and, you know, you brought up the flyball revolution. I have been repeatedly frustrated about the way that that has been discussed in mainstream baseball media by like old media types, but even by like former players like Alex Rodriguez and booths. And it doesn't even, we don't even have to single out a rod. There are, there are a, a myriad of former players who just rail against the way that hitters hit these days. And I'm like, so are you all going to come out and have a mea culpa now about that? Because the ball that they were being pitched to with was just leading to more fly balls and home runs and exit and exit velocity. And like, do we now just, can you undo any of that unfair criticism? No, you obviously can't. And the commissioner of baseball doesn't care about that. Doesn't care about any of the trickle down effect of changing any of this stuff. And we're in a really bad spot. Like we're in a really bad spot with, distrust among all parties involved in this game right now yeah and i you know i i certainly don't think we can expect any sort of correction of the record when it comes to that and and to a certain extent like they this is obviously all under the umbrella of the baseball but there are kind of some different issues and events at play right the tampering of the ball between seasons versus you know this this year 2021 multiple balls in use in the in the same season there are like a, kind of a, a lot of different sub 
plots here. <laughs> and I hate this extended universe. I know. Yes, I do too. It's not it's not fun at all. Um just make another Star Wars movie instead. <laughs> But ultimately, you know, the league does itself a disservice when it is not transparent with players, with the the media, because you open yourself up to these sorts of arguments that are put forth, right? You know, the you, obvious questions of did you want to affect competition? Did you want right. to help certain teams win, or did you want to help certain games end up a certain way? Like the, right. everybody pointed their finger to the Field of Dreams game because it seemed like the ball was really flying that day. <laughs> everybody involved said it was. Yeah, yeah, and and you know if you can't if there is not a concrete answer, then you might go looking elsewhere for answers. You might you might say players have started to retool their swing because how else do you explain more players just hitting more fly balls, right? And I do think like to a certain extent we have to stop talking about things like they are objective. Yeah. facts you know like we can't you can pull all the data in the world and at the end of the day these are still human beings who have may are making the slightest adjustments that are imperceptible to the human eye sometimes and so the idea that there is any one reason for a spike in home runs or a spike in strikeouts or anything like that is folly but a lot of this really can be solved by Again, transparency up front from the league. And I think this comes at an especially poor time when trust between players and management is already really in tatters right now. And this is certainly not the kind of thing that is going to do anything to repair that relationship. No, and I mean, I think that the thing that I was bristling on is the way that media and former players, et cetera, et cetera, the MLB network machine has accepted swing plane change as the only reason for any of these changes and they've just like buried the baseball you know like they've buried that as a viable reason that the entire league could change when it's there's nearly incontrovertible evidence that it's pr the primary reason why it changed in certain seasons um and now you can single out certain guys who definitely did change their swings and that definitely did lead to more home runs and you can quibble with certain guys approach and you know like a an all-out swing versus a single swing like all of this stuff that we've talked about to death that's frustrated me but you know manfred sat idly by while the primary reason for the run scoring environment of the game changed because of an action that he took and he just allowed all of these weird other conspiracy or like all not even conspiracies but like all of these weird other offshoots to, to be the explanation for it. And he just used that to his benefit to just do whatever he wanted with it and toy with the game in a way that just feels really shitty as a fan. Right. Well, MLB Network is state-sponsored media of yes. baseball, right? Like, it's... it's As our broadcasts. Right, exactly. There's, I mean, there's no question kind of why they would shy away from talking about baseball controversy. I mean, you know, it's why you don't see in-depth breakdowns of labor struggles on Major League Baseball broadcasts, right? It's why you don't hear discussions about minor league treatment because it's not appealing necessarily to the average uh, viewer of a baseball game and it's it doesn't do the league any good to expose itself in that way, right? Much better to kind of keep things between the lines, so to speak. 
until Bradford finds out about them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hide the receipts, otherwise Bradford will find them. Then Bradford is painting some clown makeup on Rob Manford's face. Um, okay, well, of course we went a little bit longer on this than I intended to, but we get passionate about these things. And it it is really interesting. Like It's a really real-world example of some of the like I said, dereliction of duty that Major League Baseball has had over the stewardship of baseball, the sport, lowercase baseball. Um, so now let's uh, let's go to our, with this long windup, now let's go to our conversation with Adam Johnson to talk about some of the reasons that Major League Baseball feels untouchable in these scenarios. I want to hear for my name Because you can't call it loud But you call it so sweet and so plain All right. We are now joined by Adam Johnson, co-host of Citations Needed and the writer of the column.substack.com. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here on Tipping Pitches. Thank you for having me so much. Adam, we wanted to have you on because we wanted to talk about, you know, we just finished this whole three-part series about the way that CBA concepts have been uh, evolving throughout history in Major League Baseball. And of course, that is getting into the weeds, into the nitty-gritty in a way that not a lot of media always tends to do when they talk about uh, labor fights in sports or elsewhere in the United States. But we wanted to talk to you because what you guys do so well on Citations Needed is just talk about the way that media trends that don't always pop out at first when you look at them influence the way that the consumers of the product, in this case the fans of baseball, feel about these issues. So all of that long preamble, the first thing I wanted to ask you and wanted to talk about a little bit is, you know, in your experience talking about how the the media is sort of under-equipped or chooses not to cover things um, with an informed point of view in other topics, um, I wanted to ask about that with specific regards to labor. Because it seems like a lot of the media that is writing about labor fights, CBAs, strikes, work stoppages, in this case, an MLB lockout, doesn't really understand what labor fights are and the different factors that go into them. So, you know, from your perspective, how unequipped is media with regards to labor in America in 2021? Well, I don't think they're unequipped as much as they, well, they are, but I I think it's a deliberate choice and they're actively hostile for obvious reasons. Um, Most sports media is run by either Fox or Disney, which now in many ways are the same corporation because obviously Disney bought up a lot of Fox assets. They share a lot of personnel. Um, so you kind of have baseball, football, and, and Warner Media, which also has a very close review. You basically have like two, one and a half corporations that kind of run all sports at this point <laughs> um, in terms of media, right? Um, and these are, you know, 100, 100 billion, 200, $250 billion corporations who have who have a vested interest in promoting anti-labor ideology, both in terms of how, how their management is filtered um, and also just in terms of the bottom line. Uh, now, they have covered some labor issues around the margins. ESPN will do an article here and there. But for the most part, they almost never talk about it. And when they do talk about it, they, they do reinforce very uh, anti-labor tropes. And my view is, and what we argued in our episode about the racialized labor uh, disciplining of sports media, is that I would argue that either second maybe to public school teachers, the number one way people interface with unions who are non-union is through sports media, uh, through, through pop culture. I think most, most people's interpretation of politics is downstream from pop culture. Uh, I wish that wasn't the case, 
you know, you say, <laughs> tell us the people and they're like, well, I don't know. You know, it's like, it is though, you know, a thousand New York times articles won't, won't, won't have the same effect of like an AM sports radio show. Like it's just, or, or a Monday night football commentary. It's just the way people ingest ideology is, is very rarely uh, overtly through that, those mechanisms. So how sports media covers labor, even if you don't care about sports, or even if you don't give a shit about, you know, baseball players, cause you view them all as jocks or whatever. Um, you should care because you care about labor in general. It's fundamentally a labor story and the tropes that have been built against labor and sports through the decades, they permeate through other forms of anti-labor ideology. And there's all these misconceptions about how labor works in sports. And I think that it's tremendously important that, that labor people or, or people concerned with the important, the import of labor in the, in the United States and internationally that they, engage with sports because I believe that's where most people be that that's the terrain where people uh, really discuss these issues. And so you have a lot of toxic kind of cliches uh, that you hear very glib kind of like I was listening to Mike Greenberg on ESPN radio for some reason, because when I drive around, I like to punish myself for listening to radio, but that's kind of very typical of how ESPN talks about it. And he said, during the labor disputes a few weeks ago, oh, this is just millionaires and billionaires arguing over this, that. This is a sort of cliche my dad said like 30 years ago, right? It's kind of a pat thing you say. Right. We haven't um, updated the language yet somehow. No. And so like, and then people hear that and they think, oh, it's just a bunch of rich babies arguing, you know, both sides. It's a wash. And of course, if it's both sides and it's a wash, necessarily those in power, e.g. The, the actual owners, necessarily win that PR battle. Um. This has been a common cliche during various lockouts, NBA 99, baseball 94, you know, a, a, a ton of different labor disputes. There's these kind of pat ideology, pat cliches, people say, that make it look like players are a bunch of, because, you know, we hear the, we people hear these contracts, these, which again, like the, uh, like the build back better bill, the, the contracts are always put over tenure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know that's what the contract actually is. It's not, it's not nominal. It's actually the sort of nature of the contract. But you hear these like $400 million for, you know, Patrick Holmes, $450 million. Of course, that's going to end up probably like $120 million because the way NFL contracts are structured. And then, but there's never this sort of great announcement for billionaire, pro- for, for team owner profits, right? So we have a very skewed sense of where the money's going. Obviously, the top, the 0.1% of players make X amount. We don't talk about the other 99%. We certainly don't talk about those who don't even make the threshold of being major league players in baseball. So obviously, that's the old school trick. You don't even play that. Um, and there, so there's a very distorted view of how much, frankly, how much players actually make, uh, and, and this, you see this most egregiously in football, um, baseball is very close second, I think, um, in terms of like the board, the, the bubble players, the washouts, the, the, the people who get injured, the exploitation of labor in Latin America, um, the short lifespans of people's playing careers. I mean, really when they announce contracts, even minor, con- you know, contracts for players, they really, really, really ought to, if you're going to express it an- accurately, they should annualize it over an expected lifetime. So if I hear this, this tight end makes $2 million a year, I'm like, wow, $2 million a year, that's a lot of money. Well, why don't you annualize that? He's, you know, he's got an average lifespan of two, two and a quarter years in the NFL. Why don't you annualize that over his lifetime? And that comes out to probably like $90,000 a year um, after TTNL, right? And so we have a very skewed player, we have, whereas the billionaire who owns the team for 50 years, he's making that money every year, year in, year out. Plus, he's also making more money. Plus, he's, you know, he's not actually risking his, his physical life and his body every day. 
Uh, again, I know that's not as much of an issue in baseball, though it is, uh, especially for pitchers. So, you know, again, I think the way in which people, um, the way in which the media reports this is is deliberately done in a way that obscures those 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 power asymmetries and obscures the nature of labor and why there is tension between labor and capital in sports that isn't just a bunch of whiny people on an even playing field kind of arguing over millions of dollars when that's not the case at all. I wish it was, but it's not. <laughs> I'd love to kind of dig into that idea of how uh, labor struggles in sports really do kind of inform how we interface with broader labor struggles, in, you know, in the in the country around the world. Um, because I think, you know, even even here, we kind of have a tendency to say, well, you know, uh, America's capitalist ideals inform how we uh, how we think about sports, right? Because capitalism is is ingrained in our uh, in our in our bodies. Well, we have a tendency to just side with the owners. Um, but it you you bring up a good point that sports really is kind of at the you know that's the another aspect I want to get into. By the way. Yes. Yeah. I want, to, oh, I want to table that. I want to. I want to table the, the sort of centering and POV of the owner as the kind of essential nature of we talk about sports, right? Yeah. Including from fantasy to this, the you know, the Moneyball, all this sort of. I mean, Moneyball is basically a love letter to, to suppressing wages. I mean, right. that's that's what that that whole system is like. How do we exploit the most labor out of people by paying them the least? And this, these are our heroes, right? These are our kind of. That's maybe a separate deal. But continue your point. I want to. No, I want to make sure we talk about that as well. We've had that conversation here on this show. We've talked a lot about Moneyball because Alex is an A's fan, but we love the movie, and as as do a lot of people. But I, I feel like there is a, a lack of interrogation of that film and that oh, no, sensation. It's a, it's, a, it's, a love, it, it's, a, it's it's a love letter to McKinsey and Company firing, like, <laughs> you know, an air conditioning factory in Indiana. I mean, it's it's a Bain Capital commercial. It's about. It's about exploiting labor for the cheapest. I mean, you know, this is one of the great sort of depressing revelations I had as someone who, you know, I'm a White Sox fan. I, I of course, you always kind of root for the lower salary team. But then a couple of years ago, I was like, wait a second. I mean, not that the Yankees are a charity or like that, they're, <laughs> or that they have any ideological interest in being more pro-worker. But like, as a, as a matter of course, they are because they pay more. Right. And salary caps fundamentally are anti-worker uh, for a variety of reasons which we can get into. But like, you realize that like, why are we celebrating underpaying players? You know, what they'll say is they'll say, oh, well, they go on later and make more money. No, not if they hit their head into a fucking cement wall at, at Tropicana Field. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 we, we are celebrating maximizing the utility of a billionaire, which is kind of, which, which, because in a way that the, the sport is set up to where their benefit is kind of as a fan or whatever is our benefit. But of course, what we're really celebrating is that they're fucking cheap. Yeah. Like you don't need, you wouldn't need all this, this, this exotic, you know, newfangled mathematics and, and how to find diamonds in the rough and all this kind of de development's fine. I suppose there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You wouldn't really need all that if they just paid more. It's an artificial market. It's artificial scarcity. It's the whole thing that we say about the Rays and the A's all the time. Presumably you could find the same good players and just choose to pay them more because you made that right. decision. And then, then you'd have a better relationship with your player pool in the future, but that that is not the case. Anyway, Alex, we are, so yeah, we we are celebrating underpaying people, which is which is just a phenomenal feat of of of, uh, of ideological reproduction. But go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about how fantasy sports informs how fans, you know, oh, yeah. see see uh, uh, their their own sport, right? You know, it's like that that whole the the old adage about you know temporarily inconvenienced millionaires. It's like fans are temporarily inconvenienced owners, right? They're like, I could, I could do this if yeah. given the opportunity. 
Oh yeah, you know, and and you, is anyone maybe a socialist should should start to do a fantasy app for for like putting themselves in the position of the head of the players union. How do I maximize <laughs> my contracts this year? How do I make sure that this player who's mildly injured stays on the bench because he needs he ha- he needs to make sure he's healthy to pick up his two year old daughter? That would well, be. I, I think it's instead because of just going out there and smashing his rib cage so some some guy sucking down a Miller Lite can feel <laughs> moderately better about it. I mean, you know. Yeah, I do think it's because fans feel a sense of ownership, lowercase ownership, over yeah. the team because like they grew up with it. Yeah. They, in a way, fund it. Their passion for it funds it, and so they think like I'm on the capital side. I'm giving them my money because I support them. It's like the way that people who trade day trade stocks feel like it's great if Amazon stock is going through the roof when that actually doesn't have any real world benefits for most of the people who have a vested interest in Amazon outside of Jeff Bezos and very few other stakeholders in the C-suite of that company. And it makes sense because the, the, you know, for a lot of times there is, there is, there is an overlapping of interest where the owner's interest and the player's interest do align. They both want to win both for financial reasons. Obviously there are bonuses for players reasons, but also non-cynical reasons. Uh, Players, you don't really get to a certain level of sports if you're not just genuinely competitive, right? Like you're not going to get get to the major league baseball MLB if you don't genuinely want to win, just to win, not necessarily because of some mercenary reason, right? Um, and for the most part, those incentives can overlap and be harmonious to be fine. But there are obviously, when it comes to things like injury, things like work overload, things like especially in football where everything is so acute and so pronounced, so you know, much more higher stakes. Where there is a tension between the well-being of a player and the, the needs of the owner, um, and fans will always put themselves because they want. You know, I'm a, I'm a Bears fan, for example, which is which is a very bleak existence, right? <laughs> and like, yeah, I'll be like, oh, you know, Justin Fields is 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 questionable for for Sunday, and I'm like, you know, part of me is like, yeah, yeah, you should play because like we want you to get good for next season because obviously they're not going to win this year. And a part of me is like, I don't know. He like broke a couple of ribs. Maybe he should probably sit this one out. <laughs> like <laughs> there's like there, there's a demon. There's a sort of sports fan in a, in a, in a pro worker, you know, their intention sometimes. Yeah. And I don't even, I don't even know how you would even manifest that into some kind of draft like scenario, but, yeah. uh, but, uh, no, it's presumed that there are little, there are little pawns, you know, they're called assets. There are, there are, they're putting, you know, a little, little widget here, a little widget there. And, and then you use them up and then they, you know, tear out their ACL, you do a little thing, you know, you, the players kneel for five seconds, they go to a MasterCard commercial, they come back, and we never hear from the guy again. And that's it. And I guess, you know, till late, until later, he has, you know, CTE-induced death, and then maybe we'll do a, a ceremony about him, and then not mention why he died. But anyway, I'm cynical. <laughs> uh, you and us both. If, we, if, if we're not too careful, it may sound like this is just an episode between myself and Bobby. <laughs> Uh, with the, the, the topic points being brought up. Um, I wanted to dig into that notion of like the fan as king a little bit more because it really does seem to track with broader trends in media over the last few decades. Whereas, you know, if you go back as early as the, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, there was obviously unions were the the backbone of the the country, so to speak. And there was a broader, I think, pro-blue-collar labor movement to the the point where media organizations, while maybe not blatantly pro-labor, actually took the time to kind of uh, examine 
labor rights versus business rights and and whatnot. And I think a lot of that has really been conflated in the last few decades. And we've seen this promotion of the the consumerist as the 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 point of view that needs to be taken first and foremost, right? How does whatever fight that's being waged impact the consumer? And we saw that really starkly in the, yeah, there's an the 1994 or 95 strike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was curious kind of if, you know, if you can expand on how you've seen that shift over the last few decades from this, uh, you know, uh, understanding of labor as essential to just the, you know, society in our country <laughs> towards, you know, the saying, saying we don't kind of, we don't care how the meat is made. Right. I as mean, a lot, a lot of the problem rests in the fact that I think the vast majority of sports fans, even if they have pro-labor tendencies, don't view players as labor. Like mm -hmm. they fundamentally think they're all millionaires. Right. You know, they're not high school public teachers in, in South Bronx who make $55,000 a year. Therefore, they're sort of, they're in some other class and therefore I don't care. And the average person doesn't probably know the difference between a million. <laughs> they don't, they, you know, they don't know how to annualize these things out for a lifetime. And so I think that's kind of the biggest barrier to get people to care about the labor in sports. And what, um, you know, never mind that, you know, the average you know, minor league, uh, you know, minor league players, you all know what it's 18 to eight to $14,000 a year. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 and so, but then there's this whole lottery system. If you work hard, you can make the big ticket. I and mean, we could go into that too. That's a whole different ideological uh, framework. But um, I think that's the big barrier. But, you know, one of the things um, that if you go back and you look at articles, again, I hate to keep, I know you all are a baseball podcast, even going back to football, but the, I'm more intimate with the 1987 NFL strike mm -hmm. or lockout or strike. It was a strike. Um, there was, you look at, there was polling at the time, sort of who you sided with. And this is back when NFL players were headed, you know, 10 times worse. I mean, there was, I think they were, they were trying to get a pension. Like yeah. basically they haven't covered medical care. Until they were. <laughs> right. And players overwhelmingly supported the owners and they viewed players as, as, and obviously there's a massive racial component to this, right? Uppity black players, um, asking for too much. But from, from then on, even when I was a kid, I still remember my, my parents, my parents were sort of, were sort of conservative, you know, ticket prices would go up. Ah, those players are getting greedy. Kevin Garnett's contract. And then the owner would release a press release saying, sorry, concession price got to go up. We had to pay Kevin Garnett too much, which violates the most basic tenet of, of supply and demand, which is to say, owners are not going to like not charge what they can charge. They charge what they can charge regardless of labor costs. It's, right. like the, it's the, ult the ultimate propaganda against any labor action since the history of labor action is that all oh, prices got to go up. That way you, you, you take away sympathy for the worker and you put sympathy on the side of the owner and you blame workers for getting greedy, even though... The, the economics and internal economics are a total black box and the profits of the owner are all largely unknown. Um, but we get these, these blaring headlines, you know, $125 million, I think was Kevin Garnett's contract over like five years. And it was this huge scandal or maybe it was like 200, it was 250 over 10 years, $25 million a year. And I remember when that came out in, in the late nineties, it was just like, Oh, this is going to raise prices. And then, you know, Joe, Joe Bob and six pack in Minnesota can't afford to go to a game anymore. And they, they've done this for year in and year out and year in and year out. They, they've done it to exploit, uh, you know, city and County and localities for, and States for, to pay for their billionaires, to pay for their stadiums. They use this propaganda for a variety of, 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 of purposes. And what they do is that when a team, you know, when a team isn't doing well or a team is floundering or, you know, in the case of the white Sox, the owner just hires his buddy, Tony La Russa, that 
the blame is always put on like, oh, we have, we have, we have too high a salary or paying people too much or like the owner, the players aren't delivering. And that's just the perspective that the average person takes. Like you said, there's a sort of ownership ideology. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, it's just so baked into how people think about sports. It's almost, it's, it seems very difficult to really kind of have people rethink about who's really responsible for, for your team losing as it were. And again, I think the fundamental problem is just that people think they're all fucking rich. Um, cause some of them are rich, you know, some of them are what we would consider to be rich, but, uh, ultimately the, the richest player in any sport is still by definition, making more money by definition, making more money for some faceless 80 year old fucking billionaire with a pink face who funds, you know, anti-abortion candidates who, you know, all, some ghoul living in some fucking castle somewhere. He is making that guy more money by definition than he's making. By definition, otherwise they wouldn't pay him that money. It's like when Jerry Jones had when 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 Jerry Jones had Dak Prescott had that press conference last year when he gave him you know his big franchise tag or whatever, and Jerry Jones did that smug fucking dickhead racist owner thing where he's like, well you know I overpaid him, but the best players I ever had I overpaid. No, Jerry. By definition, by definition you cannot overpay them. By definition, you're what you're paying them is what the market determines what they're worth. And by definition, that mark, that's still less than the value they bring to the Dallas Cowboys. Because without Dak Prescott, you're fucking four and 13. And so like, but there needs to be this constant disciplining, overpaying, greedy. They hit, you know, they hit the jackpot. And this kind of ideological, you know, production just, it, it makes it impossible for people to perceive labor as something for which we should sympathize with, much less, God forbid, have solidarity with in the event that there is these, these labor crises. Right. Um, and or, or labor schisms, if you will, and you see this a lot in, in baseball because baseball, all, all baseball, basketballs in a close second are just so based on this kind of lotteryism where you sort of grind it out year after year after year, and if you get lucky, your, your ticket gets called up, and then when your ticket gets called up, you win the lottery. Every single broadcast has this great story about how you were in the minors and you made it and you, you you know you sort of pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you focused on the game and you played it the right way and then overnight you got a your salary went to five hundred and fifty thousand dollars and and that, that that there's this macabre fucking you know hunger games element to it it's not something we should analyze or criticize it's actually a testament to the to the hard work and moxie of the person in question and this lack of systemic analysis of any of this shit and this kind of this moral pornography of these bootstrap stories that we get over and over and over and over again. Small kid from a small town of Venezuela made it big. Yeah, well, what about the other 10,000 who fucking got burned out and like signed these, these exploitative contracts when they were 16 years old? I mean, I could go on and on, right? We don't hear about that. I was just listening to your episode about like the economic cliches that make it into media coverage about the economy or that as a you know, a political term and the jobs economy and things like that. And it strikes me as so similar the way that people who use the phrase most economists agree or uh, the economy is up or the economy is down just strikes me so similar to how a lot of baseball reporters, baseball writers, baseball columnists um, just sort of accept some of the pro owner notions as necessary to the industry of baseball meaning like it is the owner's right to gain all of the playoff revenue or it is the owner's right because they own the team to you know monopolize this industry and make profit because that that is what 
they do. That is what the owner side does in capital. And, you know, I'm wondering how, how is it possible to unpack some of those ideas? Because it just well, The seems... first thing I would say is, is that there's something people intuitively know is weird when they watch, you know, 25 grown men pound their heads in for four quarters. They win the Super Bowl, right? And then some 95-year-old walks up there with his like 18 grandchildren, all of whom are wearing, you know, designer Armani outfits. And then the first person who gets handed the trophy is this guy and his creepy little family who all looks like, you know, what the fuck did you do? Where did this guy, who is this guy? I don't know who this guy is. I've never seen that. I don't even know his name. Right. And that's the thing. Um, What's so shocking to me is that this is like, this is a secondary thing for owners. Like this is a side business for all owners in pro sports these days for the, for the most part in some sports, it's slightly different. Like this is their, this is their main source of income. If they've been here for long enough, billionaires, billionaires love play toy. They love to take rockets up to space. Look, if I had $10 billion, you know, the first thing I would do with it, the first thing I would do with it, assuming I didn't have any kind of ideological discipline, the first thing I would do with it is buy a baseball team. Of course I would. Yeah. I mean, Everybody, I mean, most, a lot of people would. I'm not most people. Like, you buy baseball teams, it'd be fun. You'd, you have your little widgets, and, and then I would socialize and give them to the player. But the reality <laughs> is, is I'd be an evil billionaire for like a couple of years. Um, but then the reality is, is that what that, Steve Cohen is going to do? Is he going to socialize it and give it to the players yeah, in a couple of years? Like, Let's go with that. Um, He's on left is Twitter is that, long is enough. That, is that, so people see the, 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 weird, the weird old man grabbing the trophy, and we know that owners are parasites. They have absolutely nothing to add to the sport. Every owner tomorrow in baseball could go away and be replaced by and be and be and the owners could take stock in the company. They could put a couple marketing majors, maybe an MBA guy in charge of it, and pretty much nothing would change. Um, they don't bring anything of value. They don't run. They don't throw. They don't manage. They don't know how to coach. They don't know how to do anything. They they are parasites, and yet they make the vast majority of income from these endeavors. And they'd say, "Oh, well, we took the risk." Eh, did you really? Did you really? Is it really that risky in a closed market with with Supreme Court and con- congressional sanction monopoly anti labor practices? There's no risk in that. There's no risk when in 1966, you know, 1967, the Congress creates a special fucking tax code for the NFL. They were a nonprofit until 2016. They have they have monopoly exemptions. The NCAA, which is their which is their development league, e.g., their training league, is totally free, totally state sponsored, totally state sanctioned. There's no risk at all in owning a team. So even even the kind of Randy an argument that these billionaires took some. There's no risk. There's no. There's no risk. I remember when 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 Steve Wilpon bought the Mets. He tells the he told the story to I think the New Yorker in 2009. He bought the team for 100 million dollars. I think in like 99 or 2000. Mm-hmm. And then they were asking him like 10 years later. He wanted to, he he was thinking about selling and he put it up to four and a half billion dollars. I think now it's probably three times that. And they said. Um, where do you, where do you get off? Where do you get off 10, a 10x return? He's like, look, there's only one National League baseball team in New York. There's going to be one national, there's only going to be one National League baseball team in New York in a hundred years. And I, when I have the, when I'm trying to, and all, it's all real estate. It's, he's like, I make all my money on real estate and I use baseball to do that. So when I have the, the CEO of General Motors come and I have his daughter throw out the first pitch in a the game, there's no price you could put on that. Owning a team is the ultimate alpha dog uh, business move. It's why they do it. It's hey, you want front side ticket, court side tickets, buddy? I got you. Let's close the Baxter account next Tuesday. That's why they fucking do it. It's an ego <laughs> thing, okay? And so, but these people, they don't do anything. They don't produce anything. They don't create anything. They, it, it is the most like it is the most prototypical Marxist criticism of capital, where you have a a ruling class who literally only is there because they have capital. They they don't they don't actually produce anything. And so, and again, I know Steven Soderbergh made a movie about this. I'm sure y'all have talked about that. 
But in reality, people know that they don't really produce a lot. And in player and in, and in leagues like the NBA, where there's a little bit more player power because there's few of them, and there's a more finite there's a more there's a more finite labor pool where like mm-hmm. the difference between you know there's less of them, but also the ones that are good are basically irreplaceable. Um, they they have more power and they know that, which is why the owners in the NBA roll over a lot more because they know that tomorrow, basically. 12 players, 15 players, maybe 20 barkey players could get together and basically start their own thing whenever they wanted. Right. And <laughs> there was nothing they could do to stop that. I mean, literally, I mean, maybe, maybe 25, right? Because who the fuck's going to watch? If you take away 25 players from the NBA and they're like, oh, we're going to go start the AB, you know, the NBA 2.0 over here. Um, despite all the prestige and the marketing and the, and the emotional bond with like, you know, the Rockets and the Lakers and all this stuff, it, it, I mean, we would have to switch over. You know, it happened. I mean, it literally help. happened. And then the owners had to buy them off from doing that when they formed the ABA. And then that is sort of characterized exactly. that labor negotiation since then. Exactly. There are, there are exactly. elements of their CBA that make it harder for them right. to do some of the things that the MLB exactly. union has chosen to do. But that is only because like the, the CBA has existed prior to that yeah, so, radical so labor you, move you, of making the ABA. You, you have this artifact that emerged from basically a conspiracy between the federal government because again the supreme supreme court ruling i think in like 1910 was it that gave baseball exemption from anti um antitrust, antitrust laws yeah mm-hmm. because they yeah, ruled that it was not interstate commerce correct right, <laughs> right. and they, they even like created some legal fiction called a national pastime which gave it some le- right. some um, immune right like yeah. these things all emerged from this basically this like ra- this racist conspiracy for people for the, the federal government wanted to push wide-scale um, uh, national sports leagues because they viewed them as being, you know, if they occupied Saturday and Sunday, they 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 had a way of kind of creating national, they created social unity without the the messiness of of socialist parties or unions, and like there's just social it's just safety this artifact. nets, <laughs> right? It's it's this artifact of a time of of these totally again, with the exception of maybe the NBA, but football and baseball were 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 given massive amounts of federal subsidies and in, in, in giveaways and loopholes. They would not exist without that. I mean, football especially is, is was almost entirely manufactured in many ways. Um, and so, you know, this idea that these that and these owners own it through this again this process of capital accumulation over the decades. They don't they they don't really need to exist. And I think that if we if we started over tomorrow and built a society, we would never have a sports league where it's just some one random guy who you know Silicon Valley billionaire owns a team when he doesn't really add much. Because they're not even building the stadiums. Like they're, they're, it's it's unclear what they're actually doing for the most part. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's all Greek to me when it comes to what the fuck uh, owners. It's a black box. Um, I am they kind just of have the phone numbers of people who work at banks. Like that's basically it to raise yeah, money yeah, to buy. They're, they're glorified like, like address books. Three, three, three McKinsey guys in a trench coat could do this job. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> you don't, it doesn't have to be an owner. It could be someone who works for the works for the players anyway it is interesting to me because i you know and this is partially maybe just because the the space that that i occupy and consume on online on the internet is you know skews towards the left but it does seem to me that in the last couple years in the last few years there has been a slight shift in sentiment um that is maybe not so blatantly pro owner and i don't think that it has come around to be pro player exactly 
But in the last, I think, especially 18 months or so, the, I mean, I think you can say the COVID pandemic has actually done a lot to unearth like how craven management practices actually are. Um, and you saw uh, when when the players union and major league baseball were trying to come to an agreement for how to play baseball under COVID right in uh, that was back in like March, April, May of 2020. Um, there was kind of a shift in sentiment among fans to be like, Hey, maybe the owners aren't the, the good guys here. The players may not be the good guys either, but it's maybe less billionaires versus millionaires and maybe the players do really just want to play and the owners are hardballing them to try and wring every little bit of capital out as they can. I, is this a, a sense that you have seen reflected anywhere else in broader, I guess, labor coverage or labor consumption? Do you think that that's really just limited to kind of our ever radicalizing corner of the internet? Yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult to gauge. I would say... Um, I would say not, nothing's changed. I think that, <clears throat> again, yeah, I think it's probably a bubble issue where there's a broader awareness of labor. And I know that people who cover, I would say the journalists who cover sports more than five years ago are now focused more on labor issues. And I think that probably has a lot to do with newsrooms increasingly becoming unionized. And I think that one of the one of the approaches and strategies for unionizing media, um, because again, I, I do think there's a disproportionate focus on media unionization because it's just people we know, uh, right? It's like other people we know at cocktail party, the, the, the proverbial <laughs> cocktail parties in Brooklyn, uh, which are less so cocktail parties and more like sad little dive bars full of theater, um, writers. <laughs> a lot of PBR um, at those cocktail yeah, exactly. parties. <laughs> uh, thank God I moved out of New York. I've been to those in years. Uh, no, I'm a suspender slapping average man. Um, but the, uh, I, I think that, that one of the logics behind that strategy is that if you have a, la- a unionized labor force, not always Washington post being a good example, they're unionized and their labor stuff's city, but, but broadly speaking, I think some people would care more, a lot of digital media people, especially that there is, I think labor stories traffic better. I think they, they're a more interesting angle. Um, but again, the sort of mainline sports coverage your football, you know, your broadcast, your pregame show. Um, you know, one of the things I think that has made the whole, like, play the game the right way, bootstrap, idiot, you know, kind of mythology, what's, what's starting to erode it a little bit around the margins is the proliferation of, of these degenerate gambling apps. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for, it's hard for Bob Costas, to, you know, not, not that he was really guilty of this. I, I would say more like a Chris Collinsworth and talk about the, the right way to play the game. And then two minutes later, like, you know, the over under on how many sacks, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Josh Allen's going to get his three and a half. It's like, there's, it's a, it, the, the dissidence is too great. People see, know that it's this purely predatory business. So when they try to lean on the romance, especially baseball, you know, like the, during the, during the ALCS, when Bob Costas was given, like, I think he was doing the Charlie Morton over under on how many strikeouts or something like Bob Costas, this is so like beneath you. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Uh, and then like the next, literally like with two seconds later, they're doing this romantic kind of glossy, you know, sepia toned montage about the history of this or that. And I'm like, it sort of takes away from that. And so I think when you, when everything becomes purely commoditized in the most degenerate, most kind of essentialist way, which is what these gambling apps have done. I think it, when you sort of erode that romance in, in, in a bizarre way, it kind of, 
erodes the, the the some of the foundations of this kind of racial disciplining system. Not not that I'm saying that gambling apps are praxis. I I, I think they're horrible, <laughs> but um, and I think the proliferation of them is, is is I think the the effects of that will be seen in ten years from now. I think we'll look at it like we look at the opioid crisis. Don't don't put in the newspapers um, that I said gambling apps are praxis. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. What my point is, like they're 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 so fucking greedy that like. They're beginning to erode at their own kind of moral mythology, yeah, because uh, yeah. they just can't—they can't lay off the money. I mean, it's just fucking money sitting on the table, and you have I mean, the biggest gambling companies are you know right now are, are Disney and 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 um, obviously News Corp. Not that they ever gave a shit, um, and and MLB Baseball is just making you know making so much money off this shit, and so um, I you know the, so when they try to lean into the kind of play the game the right way shit. Which is essential to, I think, especially in baseball, this 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 uh, two tiered, well, really kind of three tiered system of of, of just poverty wages. It, 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 I think people may intuitively begin to see that as being a bit incoherent. Like, you know what I mean? It's 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 so, it's so uh, it's hard to it's hard to not view something as just pure mercenary business when you're giving odds on how many, you know, how many stolen bases the you know, the the second baseman will have it doesn't quite have the romance i want to talk about minor leaguers in just a second but really quickly before i want to you know sort of paint a picture of how things have changed since the last labor stoppage in baseball 1994 1995 it was a lot of from a media perspective a lot of columnists sharing their opinions on how this was bad for the game the players and the owners no matter which side you fall on you know we it, no matter which side you fall on this is bad for the sport because fans don't get to watch baseball for a year and it will kill it in the long run if we keep having fights like this. So we've already put this sort of uh, tag on labor fights as this bad thing rather than a necessary thing to come to an agreement, right? But now we're 20 years removed from that. We have way fewer columnists for different factors. um, And we have a lot of fans who end up sharing a similar sentiment. Or we have like radio hosts like the Mike Greenberg that you're talking about who, you know, you will often hear the line, this is bad for the sport. I don't care which side wins. Just figure yeah, it out because that. of fans. It's so pat. It's, so pat. It's, it's, the, it's the white guy at the bar. is like, I'm not right or left. I'm just shooting down the middle. It's the yes, sort of thing you that's, say. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. But I'm wondering why like that old idea, which you can see how sports writers would come to that conclusion because they don't see old columnists who are sitting there in front of their computer don't see themselves in players certainly they see themselves much more closer to owners because they have a much closer lived experience than the superstar successful athlete but now it just seems like fans have picked up the mantle and run with that same idea what happened in the interim between then that we're sort of missing that connecting link between this idea and us being able to purport something different than that well i mean because a lot of the people commentating themselves aren't are not in unions. Um, they're temporary, you know, they're either the elites making $5 million a year to fill up five hours of radio talking about, I don't know how they do that. That's like the hardest job in the world. Actually, <laughs> they should, they should make millions of dollars doing that. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, look, I mean, the way, one of the ways I think you climb up the ladder is by playing the game of, of labor bashing. You do it sort of coyly, you do it subtly. There's a couple guys in ESPN, some of them whose name I can't remember, but you, you just, every little, every little minor interaction and again, it's because I'm hyper paranoid and do this for a living, but you can see the way they take pot shots at labor all the time. And you can tell who the kind of pro-labor guys and anti-labor guys are. And I don't want to be 
I don't want to be racist centralist on this because I do think that it's not this clean and neat, but it's mostly it's mostly the white guys <laughs> who are like, you know, and obviously the words the end of the spectrum, you have like Tim Tebow, who can't, who can't go five minutes without talking about white college players shouldn't get paid. And when he was at Florida, he did it for the flag and did it the right way. Um, but uh, there's there's just a, there's a tremendous incentive to reinforce this to to either not talk about it or to reinforce anti labor assumptions about um, you know how we shouldn't do this for the money and it's like what the fuck are we doing yeah this is a multi billion dollar business you're not doing it for the money like look it's never all it's never only about the money you cannot achieve any level of success I think in anything except for maybe like commodities trading or investment banking but most jobs where you do it there's always like 20% where it's not about the money, but it's mostly about the money because it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, there's just so much money to be had, uh, you know, spe- again, especially with the huge rise of, of, of other forms of revenue, like gambling apps, you know, what, what if the union wants a piece of that action? <laughs> what if they were thought, look, if I'm going to be a chip on some roulette table, I want to, I want to, I'm going to get in on that. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of slippery slopes. They don't want to, they don't want to give labor into, and these, in these, handful of media corporations just make so much, so much money at this. I mean, I remember in 2020 when there was debates around bringing back sports and it was very, very clear that ESPN had a very specific line, which is it's time to bring back sports. And that makes sense because ESPN was losing revenue. I mean, an ungodly amount of revenue every day without having any sports. There's only so much time that Stephen A. Smith can speculate on the real estate prospects of Tom Brady in Florida, which is all they were talking about. <laughs> Remember that in April of 2020? Yeah. Because yeah, they, they were doing nothing but tea leaf reading about where Tom Brady was going to go because there was no... He's renting there Derek was, Jeter's house. He's yeah. looking for a new property. Yeah. They even did a segment on like how they were how South Korean baseball was about to start. I mean, they were desperate for content as, as, as I was. That's why I was watching it. Um, that's how I know this. Um, and there was a very clear line that we were just going to rush back and we were going to play. And they didn't give a fuck about the players or the health of the players or any of that shit. It was just, they, 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 they this is a, again, this is a beast. This is a multi, multi-billion dollar corporation who has one goal, which is to accumulate and, and collect more capital. And so the, 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 the labor aspect, I, you know, wasn't really even brought up. I don't think. I mean, maybe again around the margins. I think from some ex-players who have sympathies with the unions because they used to be in it. Uh, but outside of that, the kind of bearded, you know, white guy barstool type, they don't give a shit. Yeah, I mean, it, it did come up a lot with regards to baseball coming back, specifically because only in the context of the sense that a labor disagreement was the right. reason that it might not was come the reason, back. and it was like their labor disagreement. They're no, dropping no the ball. Like this is this is what baseball always does. It always ruins its chance to be to gain another portion of American consciousness back because they just can't agree over the money of things. And it's like it's just so frustrating because there's no interrogation of why they can't agree. Like the players well, are saying, and but that's what Alex yeah. was alluding to earlier. The players are saying we want to come back and play. But the owners are the ones putting up this roadblock. And I do think that there was some a little bit of a perspective fl- flip at the time, but it, it does seem a little bit like we've lost that now. And we're back to sort of that both sidesism that characterizes every labor stoppage in sports. The owners in, in the media in the corporate media have an incentive. They they don't lose if these labor things go on that long. Because typically Cause I think they know I think correctly. Well well, no, I think they well that's yes, but also they know that generally the public will blame players because they've been conditioned to do that. Um, I know that's not always the case, but I think they know that that time is kind of on their side, and they know that. 
Um, and, you know, players and, and pro union labor outlets maybe could do a better job trying to get ahead of it. I don't know. Maybe that's something on, on some of the, maybe we need more, you know, sports articles and in these times and <laughs> in the nation, I don't know. Um, not that anyone, you know, those aren't like blockbuster outlets, not really going to matter that much, but, um, but, you know, and I think in a sense, they, they, they know that because the sympathies are hard to, are hard to get on your side when everyone assumes that everybody's a multimillionaire. And I think that basic assumption people have that every baseball player, hell, I mean, it, when you tell people what the average minor league player makes, they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. They, they don't believe you. They, they think you're lying. Um, I found when I found out my, my cousin played briefly in, uh, independent ball. So he's like my personal hero. Um, and he told me what he made was making $250 a week. And I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> no, like people don't believe it. <laughs> Did you it. drop a zero in that text? Like, <laughs> yeah, people don't believe it. Again, even people even assume minor league baseball players make money, much less major league baseball yeah. players, again, who make money for a very finite amount of time for a very finite amount of reason. And I think once, until you sort of convey the, the, the when, you, when you properly calibrate how much these numbers mean versus the people on capital, it's hard to really kind of, flip the sympathy. I think that's kind of the big barrier pro labor people on the left. And obviously y'all do for a living. I think that's the big barrier from my, from my perspective. Like if I went out in the street right now and talked to 20 people and said like, how much do you think the professional baseball player makes in, you know, in a lifetime? I would probably get absurd numbers. I think people generally think they're richer than they are. And I think that's, that's a product of how it's covered. The media covers these blockbuster contracts. It puts them over like 40 year spans. We all laugh about Bobby Bonilla day. Well, for every fucking Bobby Bonilla day, there's a million other days where some fucking guy blew out his knee and has to fucking work at AutoZone. So, like, fuck you. I don't think let Bobby Bonilla make as much money as he fucking can from those assholes. <laughs> um, so, I think that's I think um, I, I think that's the fundamental problem in terms of getting the public to be sympathetic. And I think there are pockets where people become more sympathetic because I, I don't think people are per se sympathetic to the owners, but the owners are these faceless these faceless entities they don't i mean it, like i remember when kevin durant went to golden state there was this or they're oh he's he's title chasing he sold out the people of oklahoma i'm like the the people of oklahoma their fucking owner just moved him from seattle five minutes ago do you think yeah. that the owner of oklahoma gives a fuck about oklahoma <laughs> yeah <laughs> like they were they just tore the hearts out of the entire city of seattle i mean it devastated that city and basically no one blamed the owner or maybe they did around the mark they did in seattle but not outside of that and then Kevin Durant, you know, quote unquote title chases. And he's like this the evil demonic person for fucking two years, you know, it's, yeah. we, because there, he's a celebrity and these faceless owners are not celebrities. So there's nowhere to, it's, it, it's, it, 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 it I, I think in political psychology, it's called, um, Cass Esting calls it the, uh, Emmanuel Goldstein. It's uh, from 1984. An enemy needs a face. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1984, they give a face to this mysterious entity or may or may not be real, may or may not exist. It may be an actor. Um, this was parodied in Iron Man three. Um, but like, there's no, there's no face to like these, the owners there, maybe it's the exception of like, you know, a Mark Cuban or a Steve Ballmer, but like, and so I think that makes it harder for people to really marshal outrage or populist outrage. Like, you know, go across the street to your tip, to your sports bar right now and go start up, go start up a conversation with, you know, whoever's in there. You'll be hard pressed to find any of them who can either who name who can name the owner or give a shit about the owner. And if you get into the weeds about why a team's not good or why a team doesn't have the revenue, they'll just blame the players. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah, and I think that people think of owners as a necessary evil, but like really the first step to having a conversation like this or like 
uh, flipping any sort of sympathy is just to take the necessary off of that because they're not right. really necessary. Alex, you want to ask about minor leaguers before we get out of here? Yeah, before we get out of here, and Adam, you've been incredibly generous with your time, so we want to be respectful of that. But I did, you mentioned minor leaguers, and I wanted to kind of um, dig into that a little bit deeper because it does feel like this kind of inflection point in labor in baseball right now, where there actually is this coalescing, organized movement in favor of minor leaguers due to kind of some disparate groups that are uh, doing their own forms of organizings in various kind of parts of the sport. There's kind of a growing fan sentiment that, hey, maybe minor leaguers should be better taken care of. It, it uh, you know, the groundswell of support led to Major League Baseball uh, unilaterally guaranteeing Housing for minor leaguers, which I mean, cynically is just a you know a way to kind of um, placate them in case they ever right. try and push for a union. But you know, in the last couple of years, there has been this kind of groundswell of support. I think in large part due to the fact that the conditions that they've been playing in have been exposed, right? That they actually are yeah, in a sense kind of living living. in squalor. I'm curious, uh, you know, how you think. Um, media can play a role in advancing that fight or at least exposing that um y- you know the the playing field on which a a group of workers like minor leaguers are playing and and maybe how how more broadly speaking you know media can not necessarily play the part of being pro owner you know can actually um, I think it's about how you contextualize it like again Focus, no, stop focusing on these big, gaudy $120, $50 million contracts. Because they, they always say them with the implication that they're being overpaid, right? And this whole millionaires versus billionaires. If I made a dollar every second, I would be a millionaire in 12 days. If I made a dollar every second, I would be a billionaire in 31 years. So when Mike Greenberg says, well, billionaires versus billionaires, there's a huge fucking difference between 12 days and 31 years. <laughs> Just say nothing of the fact these are mostly multi-billionaires. So it's really like 150, 230, you know, some odd years. So I, again, I think this, this terminology, millions, billions, I, I think there's a huge power difference there that gets obscured by the fact that most people don't actually know the difference between a million and a billion dollars. They don't know the difference between a half a million dollar salary. Um, and they, they don't understand the difference between an annual salary and a lifetime salary. And I think one of the things that reporters should do a much better job at when conveying the stakes is, is talk about the lack of guaranteed contracts. Talk about how people have to, how players have to eat shit for years before they even make any money at all. So I remember when Jermaine Mercedes came up to the White Sox. He was one of the oldest players ever to be a rookie. He had this fantastic, you know, first two months. He was 28 years old, which means he'd been making dog shit for, you know, in the minor league system for the White Sox for years. He finally gets this big break. He's trying to basically, he's playing to get a contract. So he's, and he, 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 hits a home, he hits a home run when the White Sox are up nine runs and he gets dressed down in the media by Tony La Russa. And I'm sitting there losing my fucking mind. I'm like, this guy's got like, he's from the poorest fucking country. And one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere is from the Dominican Republic. He's trying to feed God knows how many fucking people. He's, trying, he's been eating shit in the minor leagues for years, okay? Making, making dog shit, living on probably on loans or, or some form of maybe some signing bonus he got when he was 12 or whatever. Like, in, in this whole... But the whole time this is discussed, right? The whole time you're in Mercedes is being discussed. He unfortunately eventually went down to minor league. This whole this whole back and forth between it's all personality and Tony said this and 
you know, Tim Anderson chimed in. It's like, can someone for the love of fucking God mention that this guy is paying to is playing to feed his fucking family mm-hmm. that he's been making $25,000 a year for, for 10 years. And he's trying to, and he just got a, you know, up bumped up to half a million, but you know, that, that won't last long. Like, can we please get some co- context of the power dynamics here? And there's no sense that that fundamentally, when you're talking about players' performances, you're pl- you're talking about whether or not they did this, this, that these are fun. This is about people's lives. This is about whether or not they can feed their families, whether or not they can buy diapers. Like, I know that sounds dramatic, but for a lot of these players, these bubble players, especially in the NFL and in, in MLB, it is. And they're not going to make money past the age of 40. Um, you know, they can't do this till they're 70 or 65. So what I would say is like, A, contextualize the actual power dynamic that billionaires and millionaires is not a meaningful statement any more than hundred air and billionaire is a meaningful statement and talk about when there is these disputes between management, which a coach is and players that we put some, we put some context into the power asymmetry here that a lot of these players, especially in baseball are from poor countries, very, very, very poor countries. They're taking care of a lot of people. They have a lot of, they have a lot riding on them. Um, and that maybe we shouldn't just treat it as some like, you know, laughable, kind of funny little story that these are real stakes with real people who come from very poor countries basketball they come from very poor neighborhoods um very some oftentimes very poor parts of eastern europe like let's have a let's let's put some let's put a human face and some context to the power dynamic instead of just treating it like it's a it's some equal playing field because it's just it's just not outside of like the maybe the most high sky high lebron james patrick mahomes contracts outside of that these are massive power differences and they're just not treated as such yeah i think you know, with specific regards to the minor leagues, because we talk about this so often, I, I, I think that just the argument is this is what when you're talking about CBA negotiations, the argument is the owners would do exactly what they're doing to the minor leaguers to the major leaguers also if they did not yeah. have a union, you know, and it's like people start to pull that thread. People in media start to pull that thread. People have been reporters for a really long time who never had to think about the minor leaguers because it wasn't a topic of conversation or minor leaguers were too afraid to tell their own story the way that guys like Kieran Lovegrove have told it in the last year or so. And places like ESPN weren't bothering talking about minor leaguers in any other way than this sort of American dream ideology. I, I think that people start to pull that thread and for the first time, they realize the power dynamic that you're talking about. And then what mostly happens in media is shrugging like they're like well that's the power dynamic we're not going to get billionaires out of the sport and so they don't bother really doing because the, the assholes that you're who shrug get about. promoted the assholes who shrug get promoted can you even imagine being like a low-level espn analysis and bringing up anything with anything involving labor unless you were a very famous ex-player you would be you would be shipped down to fucking scrubbing toilets in bristol connecticut five minutes i mean you just there's no way you're going to succeed I ever bring up anything with labor You'll get you'll get branded a malcontent and you're you're fucking out. I mean that's just the way it is. Yeah, <laughs> bleak bleak place to end. Um, but it it is it is true. Um, and it's why we have these conversations and it's why we wanted to talk to you about a lot of these concepts and as you see them in the wider sports industry specifically. Um, Adam, do you want to plug anything specifically? Any places that people can find your work and uh, your other podcast stuff? So we just have the Citations Needed podcast, which you can find at your uh, finer podcast stores everywhere. Um, and I have a, I have a Substack, uh, the column.substack.com, where I write uh, two or three times a week, where I try to do, we do media criticism, political analysis, with contributions from Sarah Lazar, who is incidentally my wife. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. 
thanks to y'all for having me a lot. I, uh, I love this topic. Um, I look forward to listening to it and listen, listening to more of your show. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Adam Johnson. Of course, check out Citations Needed if you are not a listener. I love that podcast. Check out Horse. Check out Working People. Check check out your, tipping pitches. Run it back. Yeah, just just hit the hit the restart button. Once you finish this one, start from our first episode and then make it all the way back to this one before next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, sure. There are, there are dedicated listeners who would do that, um, and we love them very very much. Uh, I'm excited about the next month or so of episodes. We have some cool guests coming up, some cool ideas in the pipeline that I will not tease too specifically because things can always change but uh what better time to tell someone about tipping pitches than now during the lockout during a work stoppage where we get to do a bunch of fun stuff and also yell about labor yeah and it's a uh hot off the presses here from evan drellich 31 minutes ago the mlb and the mlbpa are unlikely to talk core economics until january so folks strap in because you've got some time to, to to consume some podcasts. Thank you for consuming this one. We will be bringing you another one to consume in one week's time. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.